to uh oh gosh what episode is this 12 isn't it i think it's 12 welcome to episode 12 of the seven minutes podcast where we talk about games and such i am one of your hosts zach i am robert and i am angela cool um our topic for today is going to be uh in quotes game design sins or bad game design or maybe with a question mark like what actually counts as bad game design versus... Probably better put as things that people typically complain about as bad game design. Sure. And, I sense and we question, will not all agree. Yeah, and questioning those Yeah. Those claims. Yeah, precisely. But before we get to that, what have the two of you been playing since we last recorded? Well, I'll, I'll start because it's simple. Final Fantasy XIV. That has been taking over quite a lot of my my after work time. Um, I have now gotten out of A Realm Reborn and I am in Heaven's Word. The critically acclaimed first expansion. Yes. Heaven's Word. Yes. I have continued to play Gears. My girlfriend and I are going through uh, allegedly the whole series. I think she owns everything up to four. I probably have up to Judgment. I don't even think I have four. So we'll have to figure out when we get to that point what we're going to do. But uh, I am on two with her right now. I've also been playing or I've also been reading the Gears of War novels, which are really good. I actually think all those characters are really well, uh, well designed and portrayed. So the books have been fun. And then uh, I've been playing Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2. Uh, we got a review key for that for Nintendo Joe. That's been a total throwback for me. I just wrote about this in my weekly column, Bits and Bites. <laughs> Shameless plug. Uh, but yeah, like I remember when that game came out, I have never had any interest in skateboarding and still don't. But I wanted that game badly before it launched because Nintendo Power had been hyping it up like they do everything. But I think part of the appeal for me was that Tony Hawk was really different from most N64 games, not just because of like the gameplay, but like the the world that you're in because i was thinking how like when mario 64 came out part of the appeal of it was just wandering around peach's castle like the grounds Mm -hmm. and it was that sensation of being in this 3d world and then most of what came out after that for n64 was like you know you have like zelda with hyrule field and all that world to explore or you had like banjo kazooie types of worlds but you didn't really have anything like real like nothing realistic so you're talking about, I guess, the more versus less fantastical worlds as the, the thing that's different about Tony Hawk? Yes, I think that was the appeal because it was like, whoa, like it looks like you're in a real world in that game. Yeah, it's really just like that and Goldeneye and like Winback in, in yeah. terms of like kind of like real world games that I can think of for N64. And like Spidey 64, you know, you're kind of in a real world for that too, but... Uh, Tony Hawk just was like a slice of life and like this is before Grand Theft Auto so I think that you're starting to get that idea of of like the sandbox world and like how it's sometimes fun to just wander around aimlessly in like a simula- simulation of like reality so I think that was a big part of the appeal for me yeah, so. it's interesting I, I I'm trying to think of like older 
than Tony Hawk games that are designed to just be, whether you call it a sandbox or just like, you know, I mean, there are literal skate park games on, on older consoles, but yeah, well, I think the 3d is the novelty here is it's like, you know, that sensation of being in this rendered three-dimensional environment. And then Tony Hawk comes along and it's like, well, instead of being in a desert or a haunted house or something, it's like, here's just a warehouse or a school or a mall. Yeah, no, I think there's something different about it. I don't know that it's the 3D specifically. I mean, obviously that's going to change the effect of it, but you also have a lot more tricks you can do. So it's a more interesting space because there's more things you can do to interact with every bit of that space. I remember like, it's like skate or die on the NES. Mm -hmm. You, You could do like tricks in a half pipe, but like the tricks really just come down to whether you're doing like 360 or 720 or whatever, you know, a lot less... Uh, detailed in terms mm-hmm. of how you can move around. So yeah, that's that's what I've been playing lately. Same uh, nutritional gamer period for me, uh, our pyramid rather. Mostly Final Fantasy fourteen, and uh, still a little bit of Greedfall. I think I'm getting close to the end on Greedfall. It's not getting. Thank don't. God. Okay. I, I, most of my time is going to Final Fantasy fourteen, but Greedfall is a nice kind of like way to decompress towards the. Angela's about to say something mean about Greedfall. Why is everyone in Greedfall hideous? Well, they're not. That's that's the simple answer. I mean, they are. Well, no, they're not. I think the only one that's not is the, like, conquistador-looking dude with the mustache. Petrus? I guess so. He has, like, the good voice actor. Well, he's not the only one with a good voice actor, but his is particularly good. The only one with the good voice acting? Well, no. <laughs> no. Vasco's voice acting is good. Come on. Well, who's Vasco? Which one's that? Bit of poison on my blade. No. And let's go. No. I'm so tired of hearing that phrase. He's the best. So tired. He's the best party member because he increases my intuition score, which means I can realize things that I wouldn't realize otherwise. But you still haven't realized it's a bad game. It's not a bad game. (laughs) Still deciding whether I want to buy the DLC. No, please. (laughs) Well, everyone in the household loves Greedfall. Well, this is a perfect segue. You know, that's an element of bad game design. Ugly characters. Yeah. That is not <laughs> the kind of game design I had in mind for discussion, at least. Uh-huh. All <sighs> right. So, jeez, I'll start us off. Let's do one of the hot button issues of the uh, 2000s. Uh, let's do quick time events. So for those who don't know or recall... A quick time event is when you do a scripted sequence of gameplay where you're not actually directly controlling your player. You're instead just hitting button prompts that are appearing on the screen. So Resident Evil 4 had a few of these where it's like a rapidly tap A or press these two buttons together and you'll make Leon, you know, jump out of the way of danger or cut someone or whatever. I don't know if Resident Evil 4 was the first one first game to use quick time events but i do think it was the first like mainstream oh i didn't say it was the first no i'm just in terms i'm not trying to call you out robert i'm I'm just saying like i think can you think of like a like a major mainstream i can't remember what the first qte game was and i'm also not sure if it came into prominence with the xbox ps3 era or not i think i think it was re4 in like the ps2 gamecube era Hmm. I can definitely say that RE4 was the first game I ever played with QTs. 
And then uh, God of War also makes heavy use of QTs, and that's mm-hmm. also same mm-hmm. same console generation. I think mm-hmm. with RE4 is the the point of reference. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think I've ever really understood the disdain for QuickTime events. Like, I mean, unless the whole game is QuickTime events, but like other than that, like it's just usually it's a nice kind of break. And it tends to focus on things that you're never really going to be able to do in gameplay anyway. Like, yeah. you might be able to have a knife fight, but it's never going to be as intricate as, like, Krauser versus Leon is in the quick time event version of it. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think it allows designers to kind of add in these sequences where instead of just sitting on your butt watching a movie, you at least get the sense that you're impacting it. So, what's your understanding... And I can try and make the case if you don't feel you're up to it. But what's your understanding of why people don't like quick time events or why somebody might say that a quick time event is bad game design? Hmm. Well, I'll let you do it. Okay. Well, specifically seeing people complain about the Krauser knife fight mm-hmm. um, because you can get through like most of the way through this cutscene, fail, and then it's like, okay, well, I got to go back and like watch and play through the same cutscene again. So the cutscene uh, kind mm-hmm. of like loses some of its cinematic momentum. If the player fails, right, and you, yeah. and also people will say like, well, if you're, if you're focused on the quick time event, you're not really watching the scene, like you're watching for the button prompt, which mm-hmm. is not as immersive. It can be something that's maybe more fun to watch than to play through. At which point, why not just have a cutscene? Mm-hmm. I don't know if I agree with that last bit completely. I mean, you're playing a game at the end of the day, so if the game's saying pay attention, press buttons, it's like. Well, that's part of the gameplay. Like, I don't really think that complaint is the best. In terms of, though, the momentum getting killed, like if you drop dead during that fight, mm-hmm. I actually, you know, this it's not the same thing because it's not a quick time event, but playing Gears, there have been times where I've gone through like whole long segments of ducking and covering and shooting and killing things and then died. And all of a sudden it's sending me way back. And I'm just like, what is with this checkpoint system? It's like, you know, I just slaughtered like... 30 grubs and it took forever died and now i gotta do it again so like in terms of a quick time event i could see that being annoying especially because you don't have this is one of the reasons i this is like a personal robert thing i don't really watch tv or that many movies i just i don't like video because i don't have the patience for it a lot of the time because it's like if, if the movie's 30 minutes long or the show you're there for 30 minutes it's never going to be any faster than that Whereas if I'm reading something, my reading speed dictates how quickly I'm ingesting it. So in terms of a quick time event, if it's making you watch this little movie in conjunction with the button prompts, you're going to sit there for that duration every time. So I could see how that would get annoying. Do you have that frustration with quick uh, with cutscenes in general? Uh, cutscenes, it doesn't bug me. Because I'm playing the game, and it's just part of the game, and I'm like, all right, this is kind of fun. And plus, like, I like seeing the artistry of... You know, oh, you know, the the designers created this scene. It's like a little movie. But you don't extend that to the quick time events? Uh, no, I'm, I'm saying right now I can see how that would annoy okay. someone. I All mean, right. I guess it annoys me to an extent because it's the same principle as, you know, Marcus suddenly has to re-slaughter the same 30 grubs. And I guess you could say, especially in the earlier games, because I don't know as much about now, but earlier games, they would have just been learning how to grapple with this, right? So, like, maybe instead of having Krauser slaughter Leon... When you press the button wrong, maybe if they could go back in time, they'd be like, okay, well, maybe it just results in like a fumbled knife thrust and then it restarts that bit over again, as opposed to restarting the entire fight over yeah, again. Yeah, I think it's a little painful to ask the player to sit through 
half of a cutscene um, or even a third of a cutscene just to get to a quick time event. Um, I think there should be maybe an option to skip ahead. You you have to watch it the first time you play through. If you fail the quick time event and you have to start over, there should be an option to let you skip ahead right through, you know, a, a few seconds before you need to do that QTE. So that way you don't have to sit there and watch the whole thing however many times. Have either of you played either Ninja Blade or... God, what was the other one? The one that CyberConnect made. Ashura's Wrath. Mm-hmm. Both of those are supposed to be extremely um, QTE-heavy games. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've seen people go to bat for Ashura's Wrath, which basically doesn't have any gameplay except for QTEs, but uses them in like a more expressive way. So mm-hmm. to try and like get you in the head of... The, the character mm-hmm. um and i think you know i don't particularly like the krauser knife fight scene in resident evil 4 but the other qtes in re4 i think do work pretty well mm-hmm. kind of like because it's like you know the situation is like there's a boulder coming at leon leon's panicking you kind of mimic panic by hammering on a button mm-hmm. really quickly or yep. waggling the mm-hmm. the wii mode if it's the wii version and i do think that can help it's a good representation a good gameplay representation of that sense of panic yeah, I don't have a problem with them just as a gameplay feature. I, I think it, there's some merit to the argument that they can be utilized um, in ways that aren't ideal, um, but I don't have a problem with them as just a mechanic overall. And the other criticism I've seen that I'll try and uh, convey properly is if you consider more of like its use in God of War, it gets used as a as a finisher a lot of the time, right? Um, you, you're, yes. you're weakening an enemy and then you get presented with like the finisher on top of an enemy and yeah. like it's in a way it's more like the glory kill mechanic from doom but the the argument is basically you have this whole combat system with all these buttons all these different ways you can expressively play if you have the player do a quick time event instead of using like the main combat system it's not going to be as interesting which i don't i don't really think is a fair read of, of say god of war because you're, it's using it as kind of like an accent on, on the combat system, right? Mm-hmm. You you kind of you can take action deliberately to put enemies into the state where you can do the quick time event, and then you get to enjoy that too. Mm-hmm. It sounds like uh, we have judged quick time events to be innocent <laughs> of the crime of bad game design. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. So what's next? Uh, you know, one thing that uh, you know we were we were going over a list before we we started recording and. One thing that I had actually been thinking about recently because I was playing this game recently, uh, they get referred to as like walkie talkies, but scenes um, in a game and especially in these kind of more, you know, modern, self-important AAA games. Um, like Sony the last, Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, the Last of Us and, and Days Gone. You know, these scenes where you're walking and talking. And I don't know, I, I don't hate them. I just think that they have been overused. And uh, I, I had made the comparison to like how they kind of remind me of the scenes in any uh, Law & Order show <laughs> where there's the walking and talking moment where the detectives are talking to a, a witness or a suspect or whatever and they're at their job uh, or they're walking down the street. And it's just, it's it's always, it's really formulaic the way that they're done. And... Um, I feel like every game I've ever played that has these, they're always enacted in the same way. I don't know. I, I, I again, I don't hate them. I, I, I just think that maybe they've been overused. 
uh, and they tend to get overused in these games that, uh, you know, take themselves very seriously. I don't know that they always really serve a purpose that I can grasp, because like Gears, um, there are countless times where Marcus stops and is like, oh, command, and then <laughs> command starts talking to him and then he's he's he comes to a crawl you can't move you can't even walk normally he's slowly walking with his hand to his ear listening to uh listening to instructions or whatever and i think this is also in like arkham asylum if i'm remembering correctly i think there are times where batman pauses and slowly walks Mm -hmm. and it's just like why is it making me slow down Mm because like you know i'm just gonna advance to the next area and like there's no reason that the dialogue couldn't just be happening while I'm walking. Even if a firefight starts, it's like, you know, you're still just going to listen to it. So I, I, I do, I do feel like they think it, it, it adds something atmospheric that's very realistic that, you know, Batman would slow down, put his fingers to his ear and listen to a little communicator in his ear, as opposed to just continuing to run or continuing to walk at the same speed. So I think it's, it's trying to solve a couple of problems. Um, they, they tend to replace, like, expository cutscenes, mm-hmm. right? So rather than, like, going into a cutscene where this information is exchanged, like, mm-hmm. you leave the player some kind of control, mm-hmm. right? So they can walk forward and kind of feel like they're still embodying the character while this exposition happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is it can help with load times, yes. right? Because you're, you're throttling the player's movement, and it gives you more time to like load in whatever the next firefight is or whatever. Yeah, I just I, I'm pretty positive. Yeah, I haven't finished Days Gone, um, but thinking back on what I've played, I know I have heard more than once. You know, some character tell me yeah, I, I come onto their onto their camp, and it only takes a few minutes before somebody's like, "Walk with me, Deke." You know, and it's like, oh, for God's sake, you know, I got to sit and like listen to somebody's yeah. tales of woe. And, and you know, yeah, so it's as these it's OK, but go, it's not my favorite. Yeah, I much prefer kind of similar, but I, I think less frustrating is kind of like the that like like the Bioshock loudspeaker thing. Right. <laughs> or, or you find like an audio log yeah. or somebody comes over the P.A., and is talking to you, but you're still able to engage with the gameplay fully. Mm-hmm. I find that much less frustrating. You know, you actually just brought another one to mind that we hadn't put on the list audio logs that's a big one that people complain about mm-hmm. um they don't really care for that you know environmental storytelling environmental storytelling i have no problem with i actually think it's really cool i actually get drawn into environmental storytelling very much in days gone um i really enjoy finding the the recordings of um the neuro agents when you when you find the neuro stations and you're listening to them getting overrun by freakers. So by environmental uh, storytelling, you're talking, because that's kind of a big topic, but you mean like yeah. finding yeah. Like, logs, logs or notes or whatever. Uh, logs, we'll notes. Before we move on to that, let's run out a verdict on the walk and talk. So, so the good walk, or bad. The walk and talk, I don't think is inherently bad. I just think it's a bit overused. I think it's worse than the problems it was trying to fix. I'm not, <laughs> I'm like, I think it, it can have its place, but in mm-hmm. general, you just kind of get... It's a cutscene, but with worse cinematography, and <laughs> the player has to hold up on the analog stick. So that, to me, in most cases, I, I think it's bad. So I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. willing to bite the bullet on this one, and I, I generally um, try to be understanding, but I hate these. Okay. Yeah, I think I would say the walk and talk's a little annoying. It's like I think I'd almost rather just have a loading screen. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Okay. So now in terms of this, you know, the environmental storytelling, um, I I think the master of this is Retro Studios with the three Metroid Prime games where it's like you scan these data terminals and you get all these bits of narrative that you wouldn't otherwise get. But I also think it's kind of cool because it's like, it's like there actually there's one sequence of like actual genuine uh, sequential storytelling in, Met- in Metroid Prime, like specifically the first game where you're getting the Chozo lore and it is describing like the coming of uh, the the Phazon comet that hits the planet. But otherwise, it's more just like like these pirate logs and it's randomly telling you, oh, we've been doing these experiments. This went right. This went wrong. And it's fleshing out the things that you're encountering, but without feeling like it's just a storybook. And I just think it's so well done. I feel like the first game's probably the best of them with the data logs, but that's some really good environmental storytelling. You know, I was part of what I really enjoyed while I was playing Ghost of Tsushima was collecting the uh, the Mongolian artifacts. Um, they didn't necessarily tell a st- they they didn't adva- advance the specific storyline, but they did teach you about the culture of the Mongols at that time. And I thought that was incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, you only learn so much about the Mongols in school. Um, anything else you would have had to have <laughs> learned about yourself. And so I thought it was really interesting uh, reading all that. And uh, the notes, you find a lot of different letters and notes around the world, um, things that people have left behind a family, instructions telling them we've fled here, meet us here, we couldn't wait for you any longer. You know, we hope we see you again. Um, and so it really helps uh, flesh out the environment and, and the story and what's going on when you find those notes. And, Witcher 3 has yeah. a lot of things like that that are kind of off the beaten path. And most players can ignore them completely, mm-hmm. just like hidden treasure things. Mm-hmm. But the hidden treasure usually has like a note attached. And it does have things, stories like that about, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who turned to a life of banditry because of something. Right. And yeah. you like it's completely optional. But if you engage with it, it does kind of deepen your immersion in the world. I really like in The Witcher 3, uh, the the boards that you can go to in the different towns and, and cities. And in between, you know, the, the notes from the locals asking for help, asking for a witcher or asking for a, a, you know, a man capable of X, Y and Z, you get just someone who's like Ret- Ret- yeah, re- return my wheelbarrow you, <laughs> right. you fuck yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like these these just like these things um that are just pieces of slices of life in these villages um and, and so and they you don't you, like zach said you completely ignore them they do nothing there's no purpose other than to just add some color to the world yeah the, i think uh, an example of this kind of storytelling being handled really poorly would be uh final fantasy 13 which does have a really interesting world in terms of the lore. Like the the theology of Final Fantasy XIII is super interesting, but you're not going to know any of it unless you go out of your way to go into the menu to look at all the log files, which is fine if you're motivated to do that, but the game doesn't really, like the story doesn't work if you don't spend a lot of extra time looking through the log files. So that's a case of it not working because it's like, where it works, it's A, optional, right? It's optional content, so the game shouldn't depend on it. And B, 
the player is motivated to go looking for it. And neither of those things are really true in Final Fantasy 13. Like it, part of the reason it works in Prime is you get this Metroid Prime is you get this like novel ability to scan the environment, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're you're kind of conditioned to be like, oh, well, I wonder what I can find with this new new toy of scanning the environment. Mm-hmm. Well, also too, like the narrative doesn't really need a lot of fleshing out. Mm-hmm. Like you can go off of just the very basic here's Samus's mission and never scan anything but like terminals that activate elevators and like you can do it i think that it's less enjoyable but i also think that there are certain people who are like i don't care about the backstory mm-hmm. and because it's not super intricate it's easy to get away with it in that state but if you take something like final fantasy 13 and it's like here's a thousand menus to go through and a bunch of things to read it's like that starts to get like oh man <laughs> Like, yeah, this is separate but related. Like with certain RPGs, when the menus are just endless and it's just like sub menu within sub menu. And I I start to just not care because it's like, man, do I need like a textbook just to learn how to play? Like, what the hell is this? You would not like Final Fantasy (laughs) 14, at least not its menu system. Yeah, I mean, I like I, I agree that like there's definitely an element of good versus bad like UI design in these things but also some games are just more complicated like final fantasy 14 could definitely have better ui but at the same time you're gonna have to have a lot of menus in order to <laughs> that actually, deal with all that customization that i think is a good lead into tutorials but um, and, and and menu screens I yeah because the ui is important because it's like yeah. if the if the way of getting to the uh you know, this, these bits of the story are hindered by, like, just too many button prompts mm-hmm. and menus to sift through. That could totally kill it. Uh, I will end my thought on this with one other impediment for uh, environment. I'm still talking about, like, audio logs and yeah, data logs. because it's still like environmental that. storytelling we're mm-hmm. talking about. Right? Yeah. Um, one deterrent for me is if it's, like, audio-based. If the voice acting sucks, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. My exacting standards. I'm making air quotes that you can't see. But like I, I uh, voice acting has to be good in a game for me to tolerate it. Or if it's like campy in a good way, like Metal Gear can be kind of over the top. But the, the talent is so good. I love listening to it. But like some of these Sony style, you know, giant sandbox games, it's like the team thinks they've just put together this incredible work of you know, acting, and it's like, this voice is super annoying, or this dialogue is cheesy and overwritten, and I don't want to hear this audio log. Yeah, like, Days Gone has um, a mix of some good voice actors. Um, I think the the dude who plays Copeland, Cope, uh, don't believe the lies. I think that he's really good. <laughs> uh, radio, this is, what is it? Radio Free Organ. Uh, I think he's a great voice actor, but even, like, the guy who plays Deacon, I mean... It can have his moments where I know he's supposed to be a little nuts, but you know, it's almost comical. You're, you're going yeah. through the, through the overworld and, and yeah, he's like, okay, okay, you fuckers, I'm going to kill you all. All right. And like, just this weird, like breathing. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think, <laughs> I think for a lot of these games, like Deke's got his own issues. Like, yeah. I don't understand that decision to characterize and perform in that way. But like a lot of these games, Part of the problem with the voice acting is just the material is not that strong. Yes. If, yeah, I mean, like if you have a giant game with a ton of dialogue, a ton of writing in it, chances are some of it's gonna suck. 
And like, depending on how much sucks and how much of that is voiced, like, it's like, well, this is just mediocre. Like, I don't just want to listen to mediocre storytelling. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is why through the entirety of A Realm Reborn, I was skipping 98% of the spoken dialogue because the, the voice acting in A Realm Reborn is so bad. Then you get to Heaven's Word, it's exponentially better. It, yeah. is, it is very good to listen to, very well done. I think my favorite voice acting in terms of like, it's not really like environmental storytelling, but it definitely is adding to the experience is uh, Modern Warfare 2. Mm. I thought that particular cast and every all the characters and even just the side guys, like the just the grunts that are with you, mm-hmm. it totally sounds like well yeah i've never been to war so (laughs) but like it sounds realistic like it feels like this is what a bunch of army dudes would be saying to each other short of like you know the perverted jokes they probably tell each other and (laughs) stuff like that but like it when you're listening to them and you're playing that game like Mm -hmm. it's just like the audio the the audio is just so well done it's like man these guys really sound like dudes who are talking to each other yeah i think that kind of goes to my point of like obviously that's a that's a it's a much shorter campaign with a much greater emphasis on like like cinematic immersion Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. which is like going to be much easier to to make every line compelling Mm -hmm. because it's gonna have so much more focus on it compared to like random audio in the witcher 3 or tomb raider 2013 or whatever i was just about to say my only complaint really i think about the witcher 3 is uh dandelion's voice actor Geralt. Yeah, it's, you know, everybody's got this incredibly sophisticated uh, voice actor that's voicing them. I think everybody has an English accent, uh, except for Dandelion. And I don't get what that decision was. I mean, I understand he's supposed to be obnoxious, but it's it's just so jarring. You get this American who's like, you know, Geralt, my buddy, how's it going? Like, the thing is, <laughs> like, the- who chose this guy? Geralt and Dandelion, I think, are the two characters that have American accents. And it's kind of like that was a decision based on where they're both from. Yeah. Like, I, I, I can totally, I totally can see that as a reasoning. But Geralt is the perfect example of the American voice actor that works and works very well the in this reason, environment. Yeah, but Dandelion just does not. For Geralt, I think, is because he's doing kind of like a Clint Eastwood cowboy archetype as a yeah, character. And true. so it feels more fitting for him. Yeah. We've really Okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, so anyway, so environmental quick. storytelling. Uh I'm a big fan of environmental storytelling. I big say fan. it works when yeah. it's a little I think it works when you have less. Less is more with it. Okay. I would say you can't have it be like absolutely load bearing. And you need to do the work to make sure people are incentivized to do it rather than taking it for granted. But I think it's good. Well, we started, we dipped a toe into tutorials uh, slash uh, like menu design and and UI elements. Um, I was telling Robert and Zach this earlier. I stopped playing Pokemon Sun and Moon because of the tutorial. I have never had that experience in in a, a Pokemon game prior to that. I was so angry. I, I remember shutting off the game and complaining to Zach about it. It took about a half an hour, and it was just so... I don't know why the word insulting keeps coming up. Um, it's, that Maybe that's a bit hyperbolic, but it felt insulting to me. Um, you know, every, Pokemon, there are new players every single generation. I understand wanting to cater to new players, but this was just... It, it was a slog. It took so long. It felt like a tutorial, and it absolutely shouldn't. You know, you just 
Pokemon, especially the earlier games, you just start. You figure it out as you're playing. And and then you have this obnoxious, you know, friend, rival, you know, the, the cherry on top of this, this mud pie. Uh, it's an understandable choice for Pokemon in a yeah. sense because there are so many kids that mm-hmm. play Pokemon. But at the same time, it's such a weird series for it to happen with because, like, the game series is at least in part premised on carrying your pokemon forward from one game to the mm-hmm. next well also i mean yes it's a good point but also game freak and nintendo are aware of the fact that it's not just kids playing well i know i know but like there is there's a, like a big audience of people who are coming to each pokemon yes. game who would benefit from a tutorial yes but also like they there's a, also a significant audience for whom this is not their first pokemon yes game. and that's why i was that's why i acknowledged you know i understand there are new players with every generation but this felt the most egregious in terms of uh, hand-holding. Yeah, like, Pokemon's interesting, and, like, Nintendo in general, with these really uh, elaborate tutorials that they do, I mean, you go from Super Mario Bros., where it's like, just play it, and it teaches you as you're playing, to, we're going to tell you every little thing, including how to hit the pause button. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most hated tutorials right now that Nintendo has is the Nintendo Switch Online setup, Mm. where, like, so I have have a couple of Switches, and so I just downloaded the NES and SNES Online libraries to it. So it's treating it like I've never opened them before, before. And so it's like, it's telling you, hold these buttons to bring up this and bring up that, and there's no way to, like, just make it go and then perpetually as you're playing it has these prompts at the bottom of the screen it's like why are you forcing me to look at these it's like i don't want to see these how come i don't have the option to make them go away yeah this Mm -hmm. is tricky because obviously all of us relatively speaking are power users right Mm -hmm. for us this is like seeing clippy in microsoft word like (laughs) go away leave clippy alone it's it's interesting (laughs) you mentioned that because i was going to say um i had gone to new york for a uh, Skylanders hands-on session. So Activision flew all these journalists over to New York and we were at uh, Vicarious Visions headquarters. And I remember they were talking about doing uh, Superchargers. That was the game at the time that they were working on. And that game has a racing component to it. And they said that they had come up with like this elaborate, like you use the stick to move and like one button, one other button for something. And they said that what they would do is they bring the local kids in to try the games out. And they said that the kids hated this setup, which they thought would be easier for them because they were kids and in their heads, not power users, just, you know, they're learning to play. It's like, no, the kids play the games and they're like, I want the same setup as like Forza. (laughs) So they ended up changing the control scheme because it was like, you know, the kids actually were more savvy than we were giving them credit for. And I think to an extent, Nintendo is like, trying too hard to assume oh they're not going to know how to play it's like look dude here's what you do the game starts and professor whoever is like do you want to learn about pokemon or are you good to go and you just pick one or the other it's like Mm -hmm. you know give me the tutorial or tell me off you go and then and then you say like okay well if you change your mind go to this menu yes exactly and like that should be how it is with like almost every game they make i mean i've gone to e3s and they've had games set up in front of me and the booth attendants like, oh, so you're going to press this and press it. And I'm like, yeah, I already know what to do. Like, I've never touched this game before and I know how to play it. Like- well, what's strange <laughs> to me is, is like all these, uh, assumedly anyway, all these people who are involved in making these decisions played a game at some point. They grew up with 
the NES, the Atari, the Super Nintendo. How did I just kind of want to ask him, like, how did you figure out how to play those games? Well, those you learn you learned them by you, you. You learned as you were going. People are not incapable of still doing that today. Those are sure, and sure. You know, we we definitely have, you know, some some quality. Some of those games could have benefited maybe from some quality of life improvements. I'm not really super married to that idea, but I can see an argument made for that. But ultimately, by and large, like people are still capable of figuring things out as soon as you, you pick it up. Like, OK, what do I do with this thing? Trial and error. Let me it's it's just this weird obsession that especially Nintendo has with we have new players and we have to hold their hands like, no, you don't. You don't. Let people figure it out. There are some games for which there is more complexity than can reasonably be figured out. You know, like Super Mario Brothers is like the famous example of like letting the player figure out how to play. Mm -hmm. But you look at an NES controller, it's the D-pad, these mm -hmm. two buttons in the middle that don't really do much. Mm -hmm. And then like A, you press that. Oh, I jump. B, you hold that and you run. Mm -hmm. And that's the, ex the extent of the controls. And then the first stage, because the controls are so limited, the game world is so focused in its scope the player really can figure it out as they go mm -hmm. a lot of games are not that simple anymore mm -hmm. and I, I think even people who did grow up on atari or nes or super nintendo games were they like they know that they learned it on the fly but they also know that the games were much simpler in terms of like the control scheme mm -hmm. than a lot of like if you look at like an xbox 360 controller mm -hmm. it's much more overwhelming for somebody who's never played a game before than an nes controller is i mean look at final fantasy 14 so far as I can remember, when I first started, there were no real tutorials per se. It was a lot of just throwing you into the game and you figure out how to play it. You know, you start at the, uh, was it the Alchemist Guild in Limsa Lumensa? Uh, Arcanist. Yeah, you that, the Ar as an Arcanist. Yeah, so, you know, you, you get told, go, go kill X number of these enemies. You just kind of figure out how to do it. And there are times, obviously, where something new, some new mechanic will crop up, and then you'll get this... Uh, message on the screen and it'll teach you how, how to do that new thing and you read a couple of slides and then it goes away. Um, but you don't have to sit through these tutorials that are very obviously tutorials. It's just uh, go fight these incredibly basic enemies and you'll learn your, your control scheme. And then as things get more complicated and you're having to utilize more buttons and the, and the trigger buttons on top of the shoulder buttons, you know, you you're learning and you figure it out and things pop up on screen to tell you how to do that. It's but. much more parceled out bit by bit, which yeah. as tutorials go, I, I definitely like I can find that frustrating, but not as frustrating as feeling like I haven't been allowed to play the game for the first 30 to 30 yes. minutes to an hour of a game. Yes. Yeah. You know, Monster Hunter has kind of struggled with this where it's gone. It's had entries where it's like, you know, almost completely, uh, What's the word I'm thinking for? Not imperceptible. Uh, anyway, you can edit out this long pause after. <laughs> Monster Hunter is interesting because it's like there's this huge learning curve. And some of the games do a better job of like trying to like, like, oh, here's how you do this. Here, here's how you do that. And then other games, it's like, no, go through the menus if you need to. There is one form of tutorial that is maybe not as uh, thought about, which is like player teaching player. Because, like, probably with, like, Angie and you playing Final Fantasy, it's been a more you telling Angie, oh, this is what you do, this is what you do, versus Definitely. Angie, like, going through the menus. And she never listens. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, you know, my friend Nick, he loves Monster Hunter. And, you know, I've played some of the games before, but, like, sitting and going through Rise, and he's like, oh, you do this, you do that. 
I'm like, this is so much more effective than any tutorial, mm -hmm. than going through any of the menus. And in fact, now the menus are easier to go through because I know what certain things are now because of what he, you know, taught me. Honestly, even if you don't have a Nick or a Zach or whatever, like I do think in a lot of cases, finding some dude's YouTube video of like the top mm -hmm. five things you need to know before starting day is gone is mm -hmm. going to be much more useful as a tutorial than anything in the game see for me I'll, I'll look up that when it's not a video and it's just like a checklist <laughs> I, I i will only look up stuff like that if i'm really really stuck and i need a visual aid um but you know actually robert you mentioned menus and i think this is a good segue into the second half of the tutorial discussion is uh you know ui and 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 menus and i do think that this is where for example like final fantasy 14 uh can get a little much uh, there are just you you press start and there's all these different columns and within each column is like I don't know like 10 different options for menus and and then like even like your menu you, you jump into something like say just your inventory and you know you can press the shoulder button four five six times and and there's just a bunch of crap in your inventory like it is very convoluted and I think the most egregious example of this is all of the different windows on your screen. I'm not even, I won't even, I'm not even going to pretend like this isn't how this, how this, this happened. I got so frustrated because I couldn't see something. Oh, Zach and I are running a dungeon. And there's this, this menu that you can't close. It's there perpetually throughout the whole thing. It is blocking the actual action of the fight. And it, it was driving me insane. I was so angry afterwards. I told Zach, like, just however you have your menu screens set up, just go ahead and do that for mine. Because that was that was ridiculous. <laughs> uh, and I mean, and even that, it's not that is not user friendly. I don't even know where you went to do it. I know it took you a while. I was sitting there watching you move things around and, and, and uh, reorganize the, the windows on the screen. But that was insane. Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, too, because it starts veering a little bit into uh, issues of accessibility. Now, that topic has just been mangled with different meaning for certain people now. But like in terms of like actual usability, mm -hmm. um, I can't stand the tiny fonts. It's yes. like I, I don't get it. It's like you have these HD screens and you make the font as small as you possibly can. <laughs> and I guess somebody is like, aesthetically, it looks better. It's like, yeah, and I can't read the shit. Like, <laughs> make it bigger. Yeah. That and was like, a big problem in like circa 2007, 2008, when like see, the developers had HDTVs, but a lot of users didn't. Well, even now, like, like I remember that, like back, because I had, uh, oh man, it was one of the Banjo-Kazooie games. I think it was Nuts and Bolts had come out. And that game got major flack because if you were playing it on a tube TV, it was super hard to read the uh, text. I think they eventually did an update for it. Mm -hmm. But even with today's games, like I'll be sitting and playing stuff on my Switch or on my, uh, you know, my PlayStation or my Xbox. And I'm just looking at the screen and I'm like, why is it so small? And like some games will let you increase the size, thank God. But other times it's like, <laughs> you know, it's just too tiny. And then, you know, there are other like little boneheaded things that will pop up. It's like, how did somebody not think about this? So like, because I've been playing on my uh, my Xbox One a lot, uh, I noticed, because I've been playing the 360 and the One, there's games I'm playing on each. So the 360, when you would get an achievement, it will pop up in a way where it appears on the screen, cool, I see it, it's not interfering with anything. <laughs> on the One, I have the, the subtitles turned on, because it's easier for me to like read stuff sometimes than to hear it. 
So like dialogue will be going across the screen and then I get an achievement and they have it set up so that the achievement window pops up right over the dialogue every time and it like fills it. And I'm like, I can't read, you know, it's like, thank God I can still hear him. But like you're defeating the purpose of the the text. You haven't turned off your like achievement notifications. I mean, I can, but I kind of like seeing when I get them. So it's like it's satisfying seeing that. It's like, can you put it up top? Sounds like user error. <laughs> no, you know, Witcher 3 is actually a good example of, of an RPG that I think handles menus pretty well. Uh, I remember figuring out pretty quickly how those menus worked and, and not feeling like it was too convoluted or or overwhelming. And then thinking of games that they deliberately they go for like a streamlined aesthetic. And there's certainly a, a visible aesthetic is uh, Ghost of Tsushima and Days Gone. Um, I found both of those menus really easy to figure out uh, pretty fast, even though they're Really, they're, they are a bit complicated, like for Days Gone. There's there's a lot going on. Ghost of Tsushima isn't super complicated. There's just a lot of stuff. Uh, but I think that it's organized really well. Um, so I think that th those are all immediate examples I can think of of games that had menus that I, I found easy I to navigate. I definitely don't love Witcher 3's menu, but that's more... It just it's a kind of, it can be kind of slow to go through like different nested levels. Like if I want to look up the bestiary entry for, I don't know... A noon wraith. Mm -hmm. I gotta, I gotta go over to like one section, and then into that section, then expand a section. And it's, but it's like it's just a consequence of there being so many things yeah. in the menu. It's certainly not perfect. There's um, definitely room for improvement with Witcher Three. I just, I didn't, I didn't hate it. Yeah. Well, to be fair though, there is a section of gamer that loves the obtuse menu system. Yes. For them, that is a game unto itself mm -hmm. of figuring out everything and knowing how all these things connect and work and you go here to see this and do this and change that. Yeah, there's even a pleasure, like, I'll be honest, I, it's nice to customize the HUD and the UI in Final Fantasy XIV because every player can have it set mm -hmm. up their own way, you know? I feel like we, Zach, we had a conversation with one of our friends, a former coworker about menus. I definitely remember hearing you having a conversation with him about... Yeah, I don't remember the details. Yeah, but uh, Robert is correct. Just from what I remember of that conversation, there are, are people who they love menus, they love going through them, they have very strong opinions about them, and if they are customizable, they will customize them. Oh, well, some <laughs> menus are just fun to go through. Like yeah. the, I mean, the the classic Final Fantasy games are have really satisfying menus. Yeah. Um, it's just even down to like that, like, how quickly the cursor moves, the sound the cursor makes, the clicks and the colors yeah. and all of it is really nice. Yeah. Well, you know, not to expand this too much, but, you know, we're talking about UIs. You know, it goes beyond menus too, like uh, health systems. Like I know that a lot of people loved in Dead Space how your health meter is the lights that are on Isaac's back. Mm. And so like it's you see that diminish as your health goes down. So instead of having a meter on the screen, he we, is the meter. You know, we could maybe talk about like diegetic versus non-diegetic information if you want, but maybe we should close up on, on yeah, UI. Um, yeah. I think that just, you know, in the uh, in terms and of tutorials. The, yeah, in terms of the topic of tutorials in the UI, I think for the most part I'm pretty anti-tutorial. Just throw me into the game and I'll figure it out. Uh, in terms of UI, uh, it is going to enrage me pretty fast if something is blocking my vision or if the menus are just boneheaded and convoluted. Yeah, I think tutorials, they have their place. I think that as time has gone on, 
certain uh, setups have become very standard. So, like, if you play a game that's a first-person shooter prior to, like, Modern Warfare, they're all over the place with where the buttons are, are mapped. And so, like, if, like, play Perfect Dark on 360. Though that setup just feels so alien to me. So it's like, I need a tutorial for this. But, like, all the other shooters where it's mostly just, like, you know... Hold left trigger, you look down sights, right trigger, you shoot. Racing games, you use the triggers for braking gas. Like, you kind of stop needing the tutorial as much when everything's sort of adhering to these standards. For you, because you've played previous Call of Duty games, you've played previous racing games, but they need to worry about onboarding players who haven't either. Sure, but, you know, like, less intrusive ways of doing it i think are the best you know whether it's just a simple overlay on the screen that you can ignore or if you desperately need it you can be oh i gotta press these Mm -hmm. or just entirely skippable chunks i think is the smartest way to go about it for me on the ui side of things i feel like i'm more ambivalent about um super complicated menus and things because i do think some games just are more complicated and there's only so much you can do to really uh, streamline that without losing some of the like customization and stuff that the game would allow if you if you gave it like much more fine grained controls. Like there definitely there's a an issue of consolization of traditionally PC games where there are less things you can control because the the designers have streamlined it at the expense of those options. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm more mixed on that. In terms of tutorial, I don't want to say I'm against tutorials outright, but in practice, I I really don't think, like, no matter how much effort Nintendo, whoever puts in their, into their tutorials, it's not going to be better than, like, you know, the seven-minute video from IGN or some guy named, like, Gamer Wolf that is just <laughs> like, it's like, what's up? Remember, like, favorite, subscribe. Yeah. In this video, we're going to be showing you, like, the seven tips you got in it. You know, like, those are obnoxious, but they're better at teaching you, like, the necessary things than, than what the professional game designers are putting in the damn games. Yeah. Well, uh, the next topic is a pretty contentious one for a lot of people, but grinding. Um, Zach, I would like to turn this over to you because you had a recent, a recent example of not so good grinding, I would say, or... Well, just to be clear, so like when we talk about grinding, and I want to make sure we're on the same page. Yeah. So like in an RPG where it's like you're going to do this, these battles over and over to level your character up so that mm-hmm. your character's strong enough to take on the more powerful ones. And the more you grind outside of the bare minimum, the stronger you are and better you are set up for what comes later. Now, whether it's battling in an RPG or doing any any task or activity that's going to continue to give you more ability strength power whatever Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. what we mean by grinding yeah yeah i think people do use the word grinding to refer to things that really aren't like what i think of as grinding is like do something over and over so -hmm. that you can then later do the thing that you actually want to do yes i think a lot of the times uh criticism about grinding is made about games that frankly don't require any grinding this is a thing that like i don't know if it's a player psychology thing but some players will complain that like you know final fantasy 4 final fantasy 7 or whatever will require a lot of grinding to get through and those games do not require any grinding whatsoever you can just proceed from one plot point to the next and you'll be fine agreed i'm surprised to hear about that hear that about 7 i didn't feel at any point playing 7 like 
I needed to grind. But there's like a there's like a player type who sees the meter go up and be like, oh, well, I want to get fire too, so I need to get this many more AP on my materia so that I get fired too you know yeah and like okay well yeah. that that's up to you buddy <laughs> um but to take angela i actually can't remember what you were trying to tee up for me um so you had uh you were playing yakuza like a dragon and oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. and i think this actually uh, resulted in you not finishing the game is that correct yeah that's right yeah um so without spoiling the specifics i, I don't know like what the how we want to treat spoilers in games generally, but this is under a year old, so yeah. I'll be vague. Um, Yakuza Like a Dragon is a, is a turn-based JRPG, and it is pretty easy throughout the course of the game. So my experience playing the game was I wasn't really stressing that much about what classes my characters were. I didn't really have to go out of my way to level up. I was doing the side quest that I thought was thought were fun and nothing beyond that and that was working fine uh until uh shortly after the story transitions to osaka and then you go through kind of this essentially a dungeon and you get to the boss and i I think at that point i was i might have the numbers wrong maybe i was like level 35 with my party and then the bosses were level 45 Uh, it was definitely 10 i was 10 levels under the recommended level suddenly despite being seemingly at the recommended level for everything before that. Um, One of the bits of side content I had not engaged with was um, like a warehouse with just a bunch of fights. And I was like, I'm not really that into the combat system in this game. I'm more here for the story. So no, thank you. But the game had been balanced on the assumption that the player would just be like, okay, warehouse full of fights. I'm going to do them all. Mm -hmm. And so the, the expectation is that you were supposed to just stop playing the game, grind out a bunch of fights so that you could get back to the story. I did like kind of to spite the game. I did grind out enough to get past those bosses. And then like almost immediately after that stopped, I was like, I I don't want to deal with this. I I didn't think this was going to be a game where I was going to have to be grinding out levels. There are games where I like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are like, if the gameplay is fun, then doing the gameplay is fun, right? So, like, if you have, um, that came out tautological, but, you know, like, if you like the random battles in Pokemon, then fighting those random battles to level up your Pokemon is fun because mm-hmm. you're doing a thing that you like, right? Right. I think people can be a little dismissive of, like, the pleasure of repeatedly doing a thing that you enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, we've, I've mentioned this in a previous podcast I, I think sometimes it boils down to a cultural thing, too, for some people. Because, like, I think the act of grinding is, like, fundamentally Japanese in a lot of ways. Or it's, like, you know, practice makes perfect. And, you know, like, you think of, like, cramming and, uh, you know, the incredible studiousness that goes into, like, education in Japan. So it's sort of the same mindset where it's, like, you're going to work on this over and over and over until you're so good at it. And then when it's finally time for you to do it, you're going to do it perfectly. And there's, a, like, that grinding, there's elements of it in there. And I, I think of, like, especially, like, contemporary Western game journalists, they can't stand it because it's, like, the instant gratification crowd. It's like, well, I know I'm going to get to the point where I can do, you know, whatever, but the game's making me do this, this, and that before I finally can, and this is just stupid. Like, there were some journalists who said that grinding is just fundamentally flawed. Like, it's just a bad mechanic. It's like, no, I think you're just a spoiled Westerner. 
but i mean there are games where it does like at least for me it did ruin well like yakuza like a dragon for me but it's because i didn't like the thing that the grinding was well also i thought at the time you had said too that it felt like the game was just kind of leaving you out of the loop in terms of what you needed to do to beat that battle because it was like you made the point with like final fantasy and I think Pokemon is similar. Like, if, if you're playing Pokemon and you are fighting every single trainer on your path between towns, mm-hmm. you tend to get to a point where your character, your your Pokemon are just good enough to get you through each upcoming, you know, gym or whatever. So, like, with Yakuza, it seems like the flaw was like, hey, I'm, I'm doing what it seems to be presenting me is enough to keep getting through. And then I get to this battle and suddenly it's like, oh, by the way, you didn't, you know, you didn't grind however much more and it's like well i had no inkling i was this far behind because you can usually tell because like yeah. the enemies you're facing will like you know you're level 10 all the enemies are level 11 and you're like okay so i need to get to at least 11 and then preferably get to like 12 or 13 by the time i get to the next area it feels like yakuza like left you like cold in that regard so there was that where i i thought i was keeping pace with the expectation and that did kind of make it sting when i got to the end of the dungeon and was like well f me i guess you know like that <laughs> that definitely um left a bad taste in my mouth but the the more fundamental issue is like i i like side battle content like i love the battle square in final fantasy 7 I, I i like a lot of that side stuff i just didn't really particularly care for the combat in this game and they were it seemed like they were maybe counting on that as a mechanism, even though they hadn't in like older Yakuza games with the, the the punchy fisty combat do have like battle arenas. And I really don't engage with the battle arenas that much. And it's fine because the game's not balanced around an expectation that you will. Yeah, like for me, it, it did sting that it came as a, as a surprise that I got to the end of that dungeon and then got like slapped back to my last checkpoint and realized I had to go do all that extra battling but the bigger problem is that the game expected me in what seemed like a a narratively focused game that did have this battle content throughout it that it expected me to be interested in battle content that had no narrative hook baked into it Mm -hmm. uh because i didn't care yeah like that's a tough sell with yakuza because it's like you've gone from you know these really story centric games and then it's throwing in this mechanic that's not really jiving and like maybe if it didn't have yakuza in the title it wouldn't be the problem the same problem but i think that you have an expectation because it is that brand you know what the series is and then they kind of drop the ball on you know prepping you for it yeah i mean it's still even like a dragon is a really story focused game it just had this weird approach to how much combat i expect you to to do well i think what i'm driving at is uh what's the term the ludo dissonance you're talking about ludo narrative dissonance ludo narrative dissonance because if you know like you have the yakuza games right the nor the the previous ones where you have the the punchy fisty like you were saying and it fits within that world and it's like you know you're running from objective to objective these guys get in your path you beat the crap out of them you know wash rinse and repeat Whereas with this game, it seems like there's a little bit more of a deliberate intention of I got to go initiate these turn-based battles and it's not quite jiving with the type of narrative that's going in the game. I don't know if that's fair. I have not played this game, by the way. I don't know. I'm going off of what Zach's told me. I I don't know. Like From like a ludonarrative distance perspective, how well that... Maybe I'd have to think about it more. I don't know. So... 
I don't totally hate grinding. I mean, like the Mario RPG, like the Mario RPG games, um, whether it's Super Mario, Super Mario RPG, Mario and Luigi, even the Paper Mario games, mm-hmm. I love the, the battle mechanics. So, to your point, Zach, I think it's fun where it's like, oh yeah, I'm doing these timing based attacks. You know, the battles are not super long. Uh, and then, you know, if I want to get more powerful, all I got to do is seek out a few more enemies and then I can, you know, bump things up. That's actually why I think uh, the latter Paper Mario games have failed so hard is because they've taken away the leveling system. Yep. And it's like, do these ran- you know, these battles. It just and- makes it feel like you're treading water. Yes. Right? And like behind the scenes, I think the, the game is leveling you because you hit certain milestones HP increases. Yeah, stuff like that. So it's like you technically are, you know, grinding, but like when there's no reward for it, like like not in the traditional sense, Mm -hmm. that's really difficult because it's like, so what am I doing this for? Why am I going to go out of my way to fight when there's really no incentive? Yep, that I will actively avoid fights in the like, especially the last couple of Mario, um, Paper Mario games, because to Robert's point, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel the same as doing traditional grinding and and feeling like there was a reward at the end. Um, you know, in Mario RPG, um, you did level up, and uh, you would have bonuses that you could choose. You could choose from three different bonuses every single time you leveled up. I think you would actually learn. You would learn your your different moves uh, once you reach different levels, and so that felt a lot more rewarding than just really seeing like your HP increase in the the more recent Paper Marios and really not feeling very much like there was much of a reward at all besides coins yeah, to, like, to fighting. I feel like Nintendo's approach with it, or you know, intelligent systems, I think, are the ones who make those games. I think they were like, maybe it's simpler for you know inexperienced players if they don't have to deal with the leveling system. It's like, well, the only thing you're cutting out of the traditional RPG experience at this point is the leveling system, because mm-hmm. otherwise... You're equipping things. Yep. You, know, you have an inventory. Yep. They took out the carrot, but left the thing that the carrot was supposed to motivate <laughs> you to get through. Yeah, yep. especially too because it's like, you know, let's let's be frank here. You know, it's like if you're thinking of it in terms of like, well, you know, why should you have to get a reward? It's like because it's a game. Like we're mm-hmm. not talking about life. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like oh, I helped my aunt take the groceries in the house and now I expect a reward. If you want to tell me no at that point, I agree with you. But if I'm going to sit and go through the entire ceremony of battle starts, all the steps, the ending, here's all the coins that you earned, and it's like, and what? Nothing. I don't know. I mean, there's something to be said for, like, mechanics that are rewarding on their own, and that can be fine. You don't need some kind of, like, extrinsic reward presented in the game. But But this is a situation where they they kind of took it out, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, this, this, it's a, first of all, it's a JRPG, so you're kind of expecting the reward system baked in. Second of all... The Mario RPGs had previously had it, right? They had better reward systems. So when they took those out, you're, you're kind of like, well, where's, where's the thing I wanted? I did the thing. Where's my reward? Yeah. So it's that expectation is, is different. I, I do applaud them, though, because I think that they're, they're legitimately trying to think outside the box, but it, they just haven't found what works. Because like Origami King, I thought was amazing, had a really fun story and was beautiful to look at. And I enjoyed the battle system. I know that was a point of contention for some people. But the fact that there was no traditional leveling, I'm just like, what are we doing? Like, 
you've made this great RPG and left out a key component. That's what it feels like. I didn't play it, but just from watching Angela play Origami King, it did not look like a fun battle system. I, I didn't care for the battle system, but the writing was better than it's been in um, Paper since, Mario games for a long time. Since A Thousand Year Door, do you think? I would. Uh, yes, I would say that. This, this, still nothing comes near that writing. I don't know how many times I, I actually was genuinely laughing during that game, but I found myself really enjoying a lot of the writing in Origami King. Origami King made me cry. Yeah, it made me cry too. So am I correct in thinking none of us are against grinding per se, but do think that it that it can just be implemented poorly? Yes. Yes. I think that's a good way to wrap that up. I think we have time for one more. Um, this one actually surprised me because I don't know why any, anyone would have a problem with this, but extra lives. However... I am going to propose an additional thing that I, I think is interesting to talk about. It's kind of related. There's extra lives, but also this new thing that we've seen in games like Donkey Kong Country or some of the more recent Mario games where if you die enough, something will come up to try and help you. So whatever you want to call that, some sort of aid. Um, so that that's, I think, is the last topic that we will discuss. The helping hand of shame. Yes. <laughs> Um, I, I guess I'll just start this one off. I don't get what the problem with extra lives is. I find that a, a very odd thing for someone to have a problem with. Um, maybe elaborate on what you mean exactly by let, that. Let me, yeah. let me make the case for why extra lives are bad. Okay. Which is not something I believe, but okay. just to try and like convey the opposition. Okay. It's, it's not getting extra lives. That's fun. It's running out of lives. Cause what happens when you run out of lives is like you have to restart the level or you have to go back to an old save. And then so it's just kind of like too punishing, basically. Like mm -hmm. somebody who's maybe not good at a Mario game is, you know, they fell, fall into a pit too many times. Now they have to go all the way back to the start of the of the world or mm -hmm. whatever, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, you know, I don't know how many times it happened to me playing Mario 3. Like it just, in my opinion, it just increases the challenge. Sure, it sucks. And yes, you're frustrated in the moment. I'm not going to sit there and act like I'm like, oh, yeah, this is fantastic. You know, while I'm get booted back to level one and I was in like, you know, right, right towards the end. But um, no, I mean, I don't I don't have a problem with that. I just think it's again, it's part of the game. It's part of the challenge. The expectation is that you're getting better and better and you're collecting enough coins or finding enough mushrooms or whatever it is to get those extra lives. And, you know, if you just you lose them all yeah i know one of the other topics that we're not talking about um directly is like unavoidable damage in games mm -hmm. um a cheap death was another one mm -hmm. and you can kind of like batch all these together and say like there there, there are things mechanics you can put in the game to make it more challenging mm -hmm. and when you trip up on one of those challenges it can be frustrating in the moment mm -hmm. right like i'm out of lives oh mm -hmm. now i gotta do the the, the stage one again mm -hmm. right or ah. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Now I got to walk back from the checkpoint, mm -hmm. right? Um, but if you take all of those out to like smooth out the frustrations, like you can't, you can't just be like, you know, what sucks is losing. Mm -hmm. We should make a game where you can only <laughs> win, right? Because like there, yeah. there's no thrill, or there's no ecstasy in winning if there was no chance of anything except winning. Yes, and I mean, and in terms of the the helping hand of shame, as you put it, I don't want to see it. Like, yes, I know, I, I, I'm aware of the fact that I keep dying. No, I don't need help. I don't want help. Let me just, I, I feel like that's something that you should be able to turn off. 
like there should be a, in the menu system at the game at the start of the start of the game should be able to go into the menu and turn that off it won't appear no matter how many times you die the most stressful part i don't remember what the threshold is but like they do this in uh mario 3d world i think um where they have like like the white tanuki suit or whatever mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. um the most stressful thing is let's say it's like you you die five times and this happens is it the most stressful thing is you after i've died four times i'm like i don't want to see it yeah. i don't want to <laughs> see it it's like it's like that's the most white knuckle experience i'm not afraid of dying i'm yeah. afraid of like yes respawning and it's like oh i see you really suck at this yeah. game. you want some help at this level i, I believe so like that doesn't really bug me that much but what did bug me is i think in galaxy in mario galaxy if you end up seeing the helping hand of shame what happens is even if you don't use it there's this thing where it's like you can get i think five stars on your file but if that hand ever showed up the the stars will never twinkle Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's like seriously it's Mm -hmm. like so even though i didn't take the damn helping hand i'm still punished anyway where your stars aren't gonna you know shine you got all 242 stars Mm -hmm. but oh that pissed me off i would i would turn the system off and make sure it wouldn't save if it happened man i'm not opposed to the game keeping track of how many times you died you know like uh, even like the original zelda has that baked in it's like a there's like a little bit of shame in there like like Mm -hmm. really you died 17 times (laughs) right but like it's just it seems like a bad match for a game as long as Mario Galaxy, mm-hmm. right? Well, to me, part of part of Mario, you know, especially the original ones, is dying because yeah. it comes yeah. from experimenting with the world. Because mm-hmm. when the world's full of secrets, it's like, well, if I go down this hole, it actually is a, a shortcut, or it's you know, it takes you to a different area. So I'm going to go for it, and if I die, I die. It's like so you are in essence making people not want to do that because it's like oh well then you're going to get the stupid helping hand it's like well i don't want to see it so i'd rather just go the safe route instead yeah yeah like screw that you know and then the extra lives thing i mean to me it comes from the same mindset of the the same type of journalist i was complaining about earlier where it's like oh basically i don't want to get any punishment for sucking (laughs) Mm-hmm. it's like you know don't end the game and make me do this over or do that over you know or you know it makes me feel bad because i've <laughs> you know I, i've saw the continuous it's just, it's just like you know there there are reasons that certain things are put in games back in the day like there's you know it's been talked to death how arcade games were designed for you to get killed and so some of that mentality carried over into the home consoles where it was like a bad habit to break and so some people see Extra Lives as kind of like a carryover of that to an extent. And I think some games have done a really good job of like doing away with lives. Celeste is a good example of that. So like Celeste, I've never been angry at playing a game. Ever. I think the closest I've come was I couldn't... So I played Wave Race. Uh, what the heck is the one on GameCube called? Blue Storm? Yes, mm-hmm. I played Blue Storm and I had it on the highest difficulty level. Is the ultimate rubber band combatants. So I'm flying around these corners doing beautifully, and you had to be beyond beautiful and perfect to beat these guys. So that made me angry. But Celeste, oh my god, next level fury in terms of dying. But the thing that I loved was that it knew. As soon as I'm dead, I want to go again. 
and it, there was no impediment. You're dead, boom. You're right back to where you were, and you just keep trying over and over and over and over, even if you died a hundred times. doesn't matter. Yeah, that's something it took straight from Mead Boy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, credit to Mead Boy. But, you know, there's times where I think it, it can be implemented well. But, like, if you have a more traditional, you know, life system, like in a Mario game, it's, like, big deal. It's, mm-hmm. like, you know, no, no, it's straight up get good. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I do think that, it, I mean, it's it's part of the the way, it's part of the, like, palette of tools that a game designer has to make a game challenging or rewarding or whatever. It, it, it doesn't make sense to me to say, like, well, you can't, you can't have unavoidable damage or you can't have a live system or you can't have limited continues or you can't have a time limit or you can, like whatever it is like all all of these to me seem like perfectly valid ways to mm-hmm. to lay out that challenge for a particular game well it kind of veers into a little bit of the talk about like uh accessibility and difficulty levels and like games like the souls games where it just kicks your ass and people think that it's exclusionary somehow because it's so hard it's like you like I just can't do it. You know, it's like, okay, well, it's not made for you then. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, seriously, not everything is made for everyone. Like, you got to come to terms with maybe you're not the audience. Yep. Get over yourself. It's like, so when you have a game that's ridiculously easy, like, let's say you were desperately wanting to play the tie-in game to Cars 3 or something. Mm -hmm. Like, are you going to sit there and say, well, you know, I'm being excluded because I get first place and lap everyone every single time. It's yeah, because that game wasn't designed for you. Mm -hmm. Like the Souls game is made for a certain audience. And frankly, it is designed for you to continue getting better if you take it seriously and are learning from what you're doing. But still, it's like even if you get to a point where it's just like you can't handle it, it's like, okay, go trade it in at GameStop. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's where the... This complaint only really comes up with action games, which in a sense makes sense of the complaint is accessibility. But I don't know. Have either of you played Baba Is You? No. Or no. No, but I remember you showed me that game. Yeah. yeah. Or The Witness. Those are both examples of like puzzle type games that I've played in the last couple of years where I got to a point where I'm just like, I don't I don't know. I don't know how to solve this, right? Um, which the, you could cast as an accessibility thing, right? Like, what if a puzzle is too hard for somebody to think through? But, like, that's fine, mm-hmm. right? Like, the, the, what remedy could there realistically be that wouldn't fundamentally change or damage the puzzle? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I, I know I could, like, look up the solutions to Baba Is You levels online but at that point, that doesn't seem that different from telling somebody that if they can't beat Sekiro, they should just watch a YouTube video of it. Well, I do think that maybe there's a difference between like the designer just is not realizing, hey, this thing that you think is obvious is not versus it's just extremely challenging because like Toki Tori 2 came out you know a while back. I think it was a Wii U game at first. And they had this whole idea of like there's going to be no I think it was like no text of any kind like everything was going to be communicated through like visuals and there was there were problems with like i think navigating the puzzles because people were just like there's no prompts here that i can understand Mm -hmm. i remember they had to rework that one if i'm if i'm recalling it correctly so like that's an example of maybe truly an accessibility issue where it's like hey this this form of communication that you came up with didn't actually work we can we can come up with a distinction between like challenge that was intended by the designer versus challenge that was 
Yes. You know, accidental. Yep. My hands were too small for me to really be successful at expert, hard and expert mode in uh, Guitar, Guitar Hero, Hero. Mm. And, and Rock Band. So I just moved on to the drums mm-hmm. in Rock Band and I was fine. Is that why you gravitated to drums? Because your tiny hands could hold the sticks? <laughs> uh, it was it was part of it. It wasn't the motivating factor. Hmm. Um, I've always kind of been, uh, as much as I love guitar work, and I do, uh, I've also really kind of paid attention to the drums. Matt Tong. Yeah, Matt Tong, from Block, formerly of Block Party, um, really kind of awakened that appreciation I have for drums, but... No, just the point being, you know, that was maybe a genuine accessibility issue, but I was just kind of like, whatever, I'll just try the drums. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm, I'm tempted to say I'm biased, but I refuse because I just genuinely think it's a mental defect. Like, I think that this generation is just like instantly, I give up, I'm upset, cater to me. Yeah. Because like, I had trouble with the guitar in Guitar Hero going past medium. And I remember one night, like, I just kept trying. I just kept trying over and over and over. And one night I had a fever, and we were at my grandma's house, and I'm sitting playing it, and I had it on. At this point, it was hard, not very hard. And something about my fever brain rewrote (laughs) my ability to play. And I just remember I started hitting all the notes. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh. I'm like, okay, I'm going past the three notes. I'm hitting the four notes. And, like, it took a lot of effort and practice and time but I finally did it, and I was like, I'll never play it any other way. Yep. And so... You wouldn't remember that at all if it had been easy for you. Exactly. Yep. And I, I just think that's lost on some contemporary gamers, because I think there's this desire to just conflate everything with some kind of equity issue in terms of accessibility, and I just don't think that it always fits. Yeah. I think what you said much earlier in the segment was something I agree with that like not every game is for every person. I think in terms of accessibility, it's important for everyone to have access to like a a wide swath of games and and be able to find things that that are right for them Mm -hmm. to be able to find experiences and games that, that entertain them. But like there you end up imposing a ton of limitations on the kinds of games that can be made if you insist that every game is for every person. Yes. Yeah, especially too, because it's like, you wouldn't say that about content. Mm-hmm. So if I want to go play, how do you pronounce it? Hatoful? Hatoful? Boyfriend? Hatoful? The, 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 the birds, yeah, yeah. The romance bird game or whatever it is. <laughs> it's like, that's clearly not for everyone. I mean, everyone can try it, but if you're going to pretend that's not like, this is for a certain niche audience, it's like, that's cool. Or the mm-hmm. uh, Senran Kagura games. It's like not mm-hmm. everyone wants the anime boob game, but there is the crowd that does. And so what, are we going to not make that game? Because, well, you know, not everyone's into that. It's like, cool, then you can go play, you know, Ninja Gaiden. This is for that crowd. It's interesting because it, it really only is like action games that get this mm-hmm. um, an action gameplay specifically that gets this focus. Like, like, you know, I, Baba is you, like I mentioned, like doesn't no one is asking for like a version of Baba is you that is easier to solve. Right. Mm-hmm. Nobody is asking for <laughs> nobody is asking for a version of Resident Evil 7 that is less scary. Right. Yeah. Like people do have hang ups or limitations that prevent them from enjoying certain games. Yeah. And I can't I could not play Resident Evil 7. Yeah. I just could not do it. And and that's fine. You know, it's like if I really want to see it, I, I can, you know, maybe watch you play it if you'll ever pick it up again. Or I can watch YouTube videos of it. There are, are workarounds, but yeah, I mean, it should just, you just have to admit, like, there are things that you're not going 
you either don't like or you can't play for particular reasons and it is what it is and i mean that is life it, it's not trying to be flippant that is life life is not everything is for you you're not going to be good at everything you're going to try things you're going to try games you're going to try whatever and you're just simply not going to be good at them yeah and it and is I, what it is and yeah. i think that when a studio comes up with good concessions that they should be applauded you know it's like there are versions of you know sony's endless you know the Sony games that we're talking about, yeah. where it's like, I'm more interested in the narrative. Mm -hmm. Cool. Here's an easy ass version of it where mm -hmm. you're getting all the narrative and yeah. you're not going to lose. Or I think there's even some studios now that are implementing like uh, the game will play through this section for you. Mm -hmm. In fact, I can't remember if one of the Nintendo games recently did that. You are right, though, that you'll get the, the settings at the beginning of a game, the difficulty setting, and it'll say straight up, the easiest one will be you're most concerned about the narrative. Yeah. There are yeah. even some games, I can't remember where I've seen this before, but games where like the difficulty settings at the beginning will have like a different difficulty setting for combat versus puzzles versus like other things, mm. like actually let you, because if it's... If, if, if you just don't want to think about the puzzles, but you're you're good at action combat, you might make a different decision than somebody else, you know? Yeah. And I think that's cool because it's, you know, it's it's not uh, dummying it down for anyone who doesn't want it, you know, and, and you're not, you know, you're not limiting the developer. But I do think that when you show up and say, well, you have to include that in the game, mm -hmm. you know, like you have to have those features. That's where I start to kind of push back because it's like, hey, man. If Sony wants to sit and give you 20 different versions of how to set the settings and make it to you, that's cool. But if this other studio is like, yeah, there's one, <laughs> there is no difficulty well, level. Yeah. It's just the game. I mean, well, obviously the the central game or games of the difficulty is accessibility conversation have been the Souls games and then Sekiro, right? And in those cases, like, I think what often doesn't get said is that they're there is a feeling that those games provide which would not be there if the difficulty was like user selectable i i just push back on saying that any game has to have accessibility for all or any game has to have anything at all i don't care what it is because i just consider games art and a game is someone's art and i understand obviously a, a game i mean you have to be able to play it to enjoy it it's not like just viewing a, a painting or something but to me, art is art, and if a developer wants to implement certain things or does not want to implement some certain things, that is their prerogative. Take it or leave it. Um, enjoy their art as it, as they intended it to be enjoyed. I yeah. think that's a worthwhile point point to make because, like, yeah, it is. It is fundamentally like a more like consumer product point of view to be like, I paid sixty dollars for it. I should be able to yes get every bit of toothpaste out of that tube. Yes. And and people are I think are not understanding that there are artists and writers behind these these games. Uh, I mean they're like movies in that sense too. Like saying a movie has to have this or a movie cannot have this uh or yeah, if so, I can't understand the message then you did something wrong. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like the the you know like um like movies, you know, the the director, the writers, the producers, they have um, a narrative they have a story they want to tell and in, in most cases uh, you know unless it's a game of a certain genre um take it or leave it enjoy the experience as they created it and if you don't enjoy the experience it wasn't meant for you and that's that really in my opinion and this is also a good reason to play games on pc so that you can mod them to your heart's content if you don't <laughs> if you don't like the the vision of the game makers then 
you can take care of it, right? <laughs> it's not it's not an obligation you put on Miyazaki or FromSoft to make Sekiro different. It's some modder came up with a way to slow down the gameplay. So if that's really what you want to do, <laughs> knock well, yourself out. Well, thank you, Zach, for your, your plug. <laughs> so uh, I think it's uh, probably a good place to wrap it. Yes. Um, was there any rapid fire quick points on there that we'd like to get to on our list? No, I think this is a good place to end it. I think the only last point I would like to make is in terms of really great UI design, I love the HUD in uh, Metroid Prime. Mm. It's so brilliant the way it's set up where it's like it's showing you everything that you need to do in terms of like buttons and, and prompts and everything, but it's Samus's helmet. Like it's actually her HUD. And so like, you know, everything from like your visors to the different beams all of it is laid out in there and it's like wow like it's it's for me the player but you can realistically be like this is what she'd be seeing in her helmet that was a real mid-90s trend and maybe in a longer version of this episode we could have talked about like the diegetic versus non-diegetic ui you mentioned dead space earlier Mm -hmm. um certainly that's part of why audio logs exist Mm -hmm. as a thing it's like diegetic ways of presenting this information but it can be good Regardless. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode. We are going to go enjoy a tasty, delicious 4th of July barbecue. And uh, when you hear this, it will not be the 4th of July (laughs) at all. Please throw out any leftover hot dogs. Yes. uh, And wishing our our fellow Americans a very happy 4th of July. Go play some games and enjoy yourself. Happy 4th.